0: I want to ask you a a question today. Um, Have you ever been uh, hurt so bad that when you hurt yourself, you didn't cry? In fact, you actually began to laugh. Anybody like that? Anybody do that at all? A few of you. You do understand how confusing that is for people around you, right? You're like, uh, you're hurt, but you're, 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 you're laughing. Uh, we have somebody in, in our family that does that. I won't say her name, but my wife broke her uh, wrist one year, and uh, we, were, we were sliding down a, a hill in Maine, and it got pretty icy. And she's going down with my sister, and it's just, she's flying. And uh, one girl goes this way, and she goes another way, and tumbles on the ice. And she ends up breaking her wrist, but I had no idea. Uh, So my dad and I, we were uh, doing the snowmobiling down in the woods, and we heard, uh, hey, you might want to come check this out. So we come pull up, and I can see her body kind of going up and down. And my dad's like, oh, she's fine. She's laughing. And I'm like, "Eh, no, I'm pretty sure she's hurt. So, uh, Heidi, you all right? You're laughing, aren't you? You're hurt, aren't you? Yes, 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 yes. I'm hurt, I'm hurt. And at that point, when I find out she's hurt, all right, everybody clear the area, clear the scene. Nobody, she doesn't want to be touched, doesn't want to be talked to. You know, sometimes when we do get hurt, it's like some weird thing happens and we tend to laugh. Maybe it's a, it's a coping mechanism or something like that. I can remember um, a number of years ago, my grandmother... I uh, love my grandmother dearly. She passed away, and uh, myself and Heidi and my brother in law and sister, we all headed up to Maine for the funeral. And uh, we, we drove all night to get there, and so we were already tired as it was. And so we're at the funeral, and we're getting ready to go in, and we're all standing in a circle, and something happens that just causes us to laugh. And we're, we're at a funeral. My grandmother's funeral, who I love dearly. In fact, I mean, uh, I spent a lot of time with her as a kid, but something happened here that we just, I don't know, we just, we lost it. I mean, I was laughing hysterically. I'm thinking to myself, man, we're horrible people here laughing at my grandmother's funeral. We did tell my mother later on, and she understood what had happened when we gave her the details of it. But sometimes we react a little bit differently. Of course, an hour after that, as we were laying her to rest and taps were playing, you know, we were crying. You know, we we tend to act different. Highly emotional times can cause us to act in different ways, bring out different emotions in each one of us. Today, we're going to be talking about a very highly emotional time for the nation of Israel. And we're going to find out that the nation of Israel, they did the same exact thing. They had two different reactions to the very same event. One positive, one negative. And so we're still in the book of Ezra. If you haven't been here uh, since we've started this study, uh, we're going to be starting in chapter 3 today. But just to to catch you up as to what Ezra is all about, the nation of Israel had been in, uh, in captivity for 70 years. And God had told them, look, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to bring everything back that was taken from you. We're going to lay the the temple and everything is going to be fine. He's, He's beginning to keep his promises. And so in chapter one, we found out that our God is a covenant keeping God. And he's a God that keeps his promises and fulfills his purpose. He can use anyone to fulfill his purpose. In chapter two, we moved on and that was last week. Last week, we read a a list of returners that went back from exile that seemed kind of pointless, but we find out that it has messianic ties. Zerubbabel, being the leader, he led them back. And if he hadn't led them back, perhaps he would not have been in that messianic line. The same thing with Bethlehem. That place might not have been available. And so in chapter 2, we found out we're on a mission. And that mission is to continue building into the kingdom and pointing others to God. And so we come to chapter 3. And we're going to begin in chapter 3 and verse 8. And what we find is this, and it's going to be up on the screen for you on the side if you don't have your Bible. Ezra chapter 3, we're going to be in verse 8 and going through verse 13. And what we find is this. This is a huge moment for the nation of Israel. All the prophecies were about to come true. The promises that God had given was coming true. But keep in mind, what we're reading is we're reading a historical account, a historical narrative And the historical narrative tends to include certain details that you and I think are kind of pointless or random. And of course, like we saw last week with the list of exiles, then uh, there is a reason. Uh, It's not completely random. And so what we find here is in the very first verse that we look at in verse 8, we find that they begin in the second month to build the foundation of the temple. So why does he include this idea of the second month? Well, the second month was actually the same time. It's a month after the Passover. And it's actually the same time that Solomon, many years prior, had began building his temple, God's temple in 1 Kings one. And so being that they knew their history and they, 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 they uh, enjoyed history and they wanted to be a part of it, I'm sure that did not go unnoticed or unrecognized. History was important to them. And they seem to want to play their part in history. So they begin the second month to build, which, by the way, is the first month of the dry season, which totally makes sense. They're able to do that. And so we see it coincides with Solomon's temple. Then we see a name that we remember from last week. We see the name Zerubbabel. He is indeed the leader of this first uh, uh, exodus back into the land. And what we find out about Zerubbabel is he is getting the team together, so to speak. He's got people around him that are going to help build. In fact, it's really a team effort. He gets all these people. It was about 50,000 people that came back this first time. And and everybody has their own little part. And he gets tremendous buy-in from them. Not just being willing to return. Not just being willing to give up their time and, the, and, and their resources, but being willing to work. And so in verse 8, we see the work actually begins. Seventy years after captivity, this promise is starting to take notice. And, but here's what we find out is that it didn't happen without effort. God could have said, all right, everybody, stand back. I'm going to drop some stones from heaven and they're just going to happen to fall, fall in the same way that I want this foundation to be and you're just going to stand back and be amazed. And of course, what we're going to find out at the end of this chapter, they were going to be amazed, but that's not what God wanted from them. He wanted them to put in the work, to put in the time, to put in the efforts. The temple was not going to build itself. And so looking at work as something that's just, ah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a curse. It's just, it's something I have to do. It's, It's actually something that God wants us to do. God wants us to be busy and hardworking. In fact, that's one of the first things that he asks of mankind. He says he puts them in the garden. He says, look, I want you to cultivate it and keep it. In other words, I want you to work. And then we realize that the work gets harder after the wrong decision Adam and Eve make. And yes, they work hard, but that's what God wanted. And so we see in verse nine, as we continue, that they work hard and they work together. Everyone had their own job. You had some people who are like foremen who you may look at and now they're not really doing a job, but they are. They have something to do. Make sure that the work is getting done. And then you have workers making sure that the work is getting done. Everyone had their own job, their own responsibility. This whole building project was orderly and it was getting done. As we move into verse 10, we find out that the foundation had finally been laid. The foundation is complete. And then what we're going to see from there is there is going to be a celebration. But before they start to celebrate the the laying of this foundation, they once again are going to follow in the footsteps of their ancestors and their history, and they're going to do so in the same way that perhaps the greatest king in in their history had ever done, King David. The way King David celebrated and praised God, and and, and the way that Solomon, his son, many years later would do, that's what they were going to do. See, Historical, these historical parallels continue. <laughs> so the priests, they go and they, they get their guard, they get their dress. And they go and they, 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 they pull out the trumpets. And then the, the Levites, they go and they get their symbols. Can you imagine being a part of this? I mean, they were, they were about to have yet another worship service. And they were going to put their all into it. But what had been accomplished at this point? I mean, it's just the foundation. Why the big celebration? Well, of course, you understand the foundation is the most important part of the building. You cannot build or no other construction can begin or continue without that being finished. It must be finished and be strong and be ready to be built on. That's what God had done through this small nation is they had finally got there and fulfilled, started to fulfill the promise. And they laid the foundation And it was a celebration of of more than just laying the foundation. It was uh, a celebration of the one who it was built for. It was a recognition that they had been brought out of captivity by the Almighty. And they had kept him safe and kept his promises. And that he's going to continue to keep his promises. Again, they're having yet another worship service. Verse 11 says, In this worship service they sang and they gave thanks. This word saying literally means to reply or to respond, meaning everyone had their own part, but it also means to testify about. What the nation of Israel wanted to do is they wanted to testify about what God had done for them. And they wanted everyone to know about it. We'll see by the end of this chapter that people were going to hear about what God was doing, they weren't ashamed. They weren't embarrassed. They were genuine and authentic in their focus on him. They were praising him, which that word means to boast, which literally means they were about to brag about how good God is. In fact, here's what they said. They said, for he is good for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. At the beginning of our service, we sang a song entitled, Lord, you are good. That wasn't done by accident. <clears throat> Lord you are good and your mercies endure forever. That's what the psalm said. And that doesn't that sound a little bit familiar as to what they just said. You see, we're not the first people to sing that song, even though I'm sure that this specific song Lord you are good was probably penned by someone different based on scripture. The the, the people in Ezra chapter 3, they were not the first people to sing that song and to say those words. See, the continuation of this parallel with history and their forefathers, it continues. It wasn't just the time frame. It wasn't just the second month. It wasn't just in the instruments and, 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 and the way that they worshipped. It was even down to the very words that they sang. Listen to this. First Chronicles 1634. David had made a tent for the ark. This was long before Ezra. And he sang a song of thanksgiving. Guess what he sang? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his loving kindness is everlasting. That was David. Second Chronicles five thirteen. This is Solomon. Solomon built his temple, which was amazing and beautiful. And he brought the Ark of the Covenant in it. And then he responded by singing and praising. It even talks about how he has uh, uh, trumpets and cymbals. And they begin to sing. And what is he saying? What are they saying? He says, he indeed is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. That was years before Ezra. Psalm 105, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. It says, for the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. See, generation to from generation, believers have been singing these same words to God. From generation to generation, people have recognized how good God is, how merciful and loving God is. Look, we cannot say it enough. In fact, if you look at Psalm 136, you will see there's 26 verses in that chapter, and in all 26 verses, the phrase "you are, his loving kindness is everlasting" is in there, time after time after time. you may say, "Well, well, the, it's 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 mercy in the song." Well, New King James Version and King James Version is the word word mercy is, It's the same word. Mercy, loving kindness, it's all the same word. It's the fact that he is good, he is loving, he's merciful, and he's always merciful. He's always good, always kind. He never fails, and he wants to continue to pour out his blessings on him, this this, this nation. And so they worship him. They sing to him. Isn't that neat that you and I get to sing the same exact words that our brothers and sisters did many, many years ago throughout history? See, God is all throughout history. It's not by accident until we cry out to him and he wants to pour out his blessings out on us. One author says this. They affirm that God's love endures forever because God has been faithful to them in the distant past, in the recent past, and they trust him to continue to be faithful in the future. That's what we believe. We praise him because of what he has done, but also what he is going to do. So they have this worship service. We get to verse 12, though, and we have a transition. This is where it gets... Interesting. Everything so far was pretty one sided, one sided on the positive side of things. There's a lot of singing and praising. And then you see the word yet. And if you notice, so I'm using the New American Standard Version, so uh, if you're in the NIV, it may be a little bit different, but you'll see a transition in there. This yet signifies a change. See, there were singing and shouts of praise for God at what he had accomplished on one side. And then you have a group of other people that are simply referred to as the old men. It's interesting, right? Our, uh, our Saturday, no- Saturday morning group that meets at Hardee's, um, we refer to them as the old man group. And uh, Mr. Webb takes offense to that. And, you know, we were all just kind of joking. But here's the thing. It could be translated different. It could just be just plain old. Uh, Old man. Uh, They could have called him ancient. Uh, I don't know if uh, maybe next time we see Mr. Webb, we say we change it to the the, the group of ancient men. Right? Um, (laughs) The New Living Translation just simply says older. Perhaps that's a nicer version. You know, it is. It is strange that the difference between uh, an older generation and a younger generation. There's because there's change that happens in between there. I can remember when I was in college probably freshman year of college, I was one of the only people that had a car, and so we would, uh, we'd go hang out, and we'd uh, drive around, and we thought we were so cool, and I just had this beat up, just junker, uh, paid 200 bucks for it, and uh, I mean, it it, it still was running when I got rid of it. and we would ride around, and we'd turn to music. I mean, my, my sound system was worth more than the car. Um, and so we'd ride around with our music blaring. And, of course, you know, all four or five of us in the car had our hats backwards and we thought we were really cool. And so we would pull up to a stoplight. And, of course, as a, uh, a group of guys at a stoplight, you want to see who else is around you. So you look around because there may be a girl in the other car. So you look around, and, and you're just kind of you're bopping in the music. And this one time we get up to a red light, and we turn and look, and it was a older couple, Uh, maybe as the scripture says, they were ancient, I I don't know how old they were, but I can remember the look on their face as we're in there, and we're, you know, we think we're cool, yeah, yeah, you know, we get our hat backwards, and we just look like tools, I'm sure, but they're sitting there, and they look, at and we make eye contact, and they just give us that look of displeasure, the, (laughs) And, and we just, we lost it. It was one of those things where we just we thought it was the most funny thing. the old people are laughing, and the teenagers, we all got our hats on backwards. And Imagine what they're thinking. Oh, back in my day, I look at those kids, and they're stinking and hats backwards. And, and little did I know that at some point in my life, I was going to get older. Um, and I've had instances where teenagers have driven past me, and I've done one of them disgusted. Flying by me, going 80 miles an hour. What is wrong with you? <laughs> Things change, right? Things change from older to young and young to old. It's it's the change that happened. Look, I don't think the men. See, the men there, the old men, the ancient men, the older men, they're the the older generation. They began to weep. They were upset about something. I don't think that they were upset about the fact that the younger generation was here and that they were coming to take over. And I think it was this idea of change. Change Change is inevitable. See, they were standing there looking at the foundation of this temple. But being the ancient men that they were, they had seen the other temple, Solomon's temple. They saw it in all its splendor and all its glory and all the detail. And they knew no matter what building went up on this foundation, it was not going to match it. So they wept. Maybe they were thinking, well, I remember my day." But that was about the project. That was about the change that was taking place. They just didn't know what to think about it. They were thinking about the past. What had happened. What had brought them to this very moment. I'm sure that they were happy. That the building was being built. That the temple was being... I'm sure that they were happy that things were going to get back to the way they were supposed to be. That the sacrifices were going to take place. and Everything was, was supposed to happen. I think that they were happy about that. The pulpit commentary says this. There were ancient men present there who had seen it, meaning the temple, in all of its glory. They could still see it in their minds. To them, therefore, this present foundation stone recalled years of shame and terror and agony. Oh, that such a thing as this should ever have been required. See, the temple would not have had to be rebuilt if it had not been destroyed. Now, before you call me Captain Obvious, we get that, right? I mean, yes, if it's knocked down, it needs to be rebuilt. But why was it, why was it knocked down? What happened to it? Now, we can talk about how, how uh, the Babylonians came in and they destroyed everything and they burnt everything. And Yeah, that's how it happened. But if you boil it down and you think about it, you think of God's perspective, it happened because of sin. Because God had placed a mark in front of the Israelite people, a bullseye if you will, that he wanted them to hit and they failed to hit it. They missed the mark, which literally is what sin means. And when you miss the mark, when sin, sin always has consequences, always. God wanted them to remain true to him. But yet they allowed others to influence them and do things that were completely opposite of what God had asked them. And so, destruction happened. Sometimes we as believers, we get a little bit confused at this idea of consequences for our actions. Confused for consequences of sin because we think, hey, wait, wasn't that all covered at the cross? Weren't my sins taken away? Well, yes, the penalty was taken. The penalty was paid for your sin. But there are still consequences. We don't have to pay that, eternal, uh, that, that, that penalty of eternal separation. But when we act in a way that is contrary to the will of God, there are consequences. We can't say, God, I'm going to do your will. You want me to be in constant communication with you. So I'm going to go pray. In fact, I'm going to go pray in a very public place. It's called Route 50. I'm going to kneel right down in the middle of Route 50. I'm going to pray. Well, guess what? You're going to get killed. <laughs> it's just common sense. God says to the nation of Israel, look, I will take care of you. You are my people. I will allow punishment to happen when you go your own way. They had to rebuild the temple because sin tore it down. They were in captivity because sin led them there. And so now on this happiest of occasions, they were celebrating the emotions of all that were coming back to them. They may have been thinking it didn't have to be this way. They may have been thinking, why in the world did we turn from God? Why are we so worried about our own pleasure rather than His? Yet here we are looking at this foundation because the other has been torn down because sin. Because sin destroys. It ruins things. One commentator even said that sin has thrown life into such a condition that the temple shouldn't even be necessary. Think of it. There's no temple in the Garden of Eden. Because God walked. And talked with them. Heaven has no temple. Heaven itself is a temple. And God is all the life that that we will need. It's sin that has ruined us here. It's sin that has made it necessary for them to have to use the temple. See, sin is costly. And when we recognize the error of our ways and the consequence of our actions, it should no doubt cause us to be emotional. And that's what was happening there. They were just filled with emotion. Somebody has said that there's no more a touching, pathetic picture can be found in the Bible itself than this scene recorded in the closing verses of this chapter. Because they're crying out to God, and they're thankful, but in the same way, they're weeping. So much so, in verse 13, it says, The people could not distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping of people. What a display of emotion that is. Both happy emotion and both sad emotion. People, young and old alike, they had put in the work. They had, in fact, they had persevered through all these things. They had given all their energy and time and resources to this project. They had survived the exodus. They began this project. And as they laid the foundation, they began a very real and passionate praise service. And it's recorded for us here in this historical chapter. I'll tell you, there are some good lessons that we can learn. Today's church, not just this church, but the church in general, we can learn a lot from them. Lessons that we can learn to observe. And it all starts with this. It starts with perseverance. Living life in general takes perseverance and effort and energy and endurance. It just it does because life is difficult, right? But life is also amazing and rewarding, has its ups and its downs. And so it causes us to persevere. The very definition of persevere is to continue in spite of difficulty and or lack of success. The Israelites had times during those 70 years when they just didn't see success. But yet they pushed on. They pushed on through the difficult times, even though they probably wanted to, to give up. See, life is difficult. Life is hard. Life doesn't always turn out like the, the movies. The hero doesn't always win in the end. it isn't a feel-good Ending, But what God wants from us is to persevere in all things, in our work, in our relationships. But he also wants us to persevere in worship to him. That may sound a little bit strange, but let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. Hey, you, you may say... Uh, wait, Persevere and worship to Him. That's not that hard. Worshiping is not that hard because I can come, I sing a few songs, take communion, I endure a sermon, I go home, and boom, I can check off the fact that I have now worshipped. Well, not necessarily. You may have went through the motions of what we consider to be aspects of worship, but unless you are doing what you're doing was from a heart and a place of sincerity that you are responding to God, which means meaning the words that you're singing. Loving the fact that you get to give back to God. Soaking up the word and applying it. If that's not happening when you come to church. You have not worshipped. You have simply taken part in religion. Worship isn't always easy. And it is isn't always limited to a church building. Well how, how else do we worship? We worship to the way that we live our life. Well that's not easy either. Because there's so many ways. That people try to trip us up. It's not always easy to rep- represent Christ when people are trying to tr- bring us down. It's not always easy to point others to Christ when the people that you're trying to point Christ to, they don't have anything to do with your God. It's not always easy to worship in your life when the people around you just make you want to strangle them. That happens. It's not always easy. It's not always easy to walk in these doors and sing songs of praise. Because perhaps you're at a place in your life where you don't feel like God is good all the time and all the time that God is good. Perhaps right now you're at a place where you're just you're questioning God. Something has happened in your life and, you, and, and you're having a hard time focusing on him. There's so many ways that worship is not easy. But we are to persevere through that knowing that God wants us to worship him and bring our worship to him whether we feel like it or not. But sometimes worship just, I don't know if you've ever been there, but sometimes it just feels like work. But what we have seen through this narrative, this beautiful part of history, is that perseverance pays off. Because perseverance led the nation of Israel to passion. The people had been, they laid the foundation. They were ready to celebrate all that God had done. But notice they didn't just show up to celebrate they didn't just say, oh, we're going to go to this service and go through the motions and then go home and say, okay, we did it. No, they were going to do so much more. In fact, Brenneman in his commentary says this, the worship of Israel was no dull affair, nor any model for a dry formality in Christian worship today. The great shout indicates that the people expressed their emotions in their praise to God, for they praised him with all of their hearts. Their shouts of joy were fitting for this historic moment as the Jews saw the restored temple beginning to become a reality. Their hearts were full of praise, even though the construction had just begun. True faith, he says, praises God even before the answer has materialized. There was no drudgery when it came to worshiping God. They sang and they shouted for joy. They realized that this foundation was just the beginning. They couldn't see into the future. They didn't know how it was all going to turn out. But what they knew is that he was good and worthy to be praised and he was going to bless their nation. Look, you and I, we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. We just don't. We don't even know what's going to happen in the next moment. But what we've seen through history is that God is faithful. That he is good. That he is all-powerful. That he is worthy to be praised. And so we worship him despite not fully knowing the future. I don't know if you know uh, the song by Casting Crowns, Praise Him in the Storm. It's an older song. The author of the song, he talks of praising God despite not being able to see Him. Not being able to understand what it is that God is doing. You know, not knowing the outcome. We can praise because so many years ago, we, we, we know that the song was sung. He is good and His mercy endures forever. And we can rely on that fact. See, we see the passion not just in the good feelings, the singing, but we see the passion in the weeping. I mean, it seems confusing, right? You have people crying out for joy and then you have people tearing up and crying. But when we realize what they were crying about, what they were weeping about, they were weeping because that, that, that temple wasn't going to even compare, and they were weeping because it was about sin. But if you see this verse 13 where it says, uh, they, they can't even distinguish it. It all goes in together. It kind of reflects all of humanity. People being on top of the world. People being on bottom. It reflects our churches. We walk in and we know that there's somebody hurting. There's also somebody rejoicing. It may even reflect your own soul. Maybe you are you are torn. That song, uh, uh, Praise You in the Storm, continues to go on. It says, even though my heart is torn, I will praise you in the storm. Look, we all have struggles. We all have pain. And we all have our own joys. But I wonder. I wonder if you've ever come in... To a church service not necessarily here wherever you go I wonder if you've ever come into a church service and you are just on you are on cloud nine you are just so happy about who God is and what he's doing and you're at a perfect place in your life and you're just so happy that man you start to sing and you're praising and and you're just you're smiling and you're nodding and even to the point where you almost laugh to yourself man I got it so good i I, I can't even hardly contain myself I hope you've been there But perhaps you've been on the other side, where you've come into service and you're just like, man, I'm overwhelmed with emotion. Maybe you begin to tear up. The tears are in your eyes because maybe the gravity of the situation that you were in, the only thing that you can do is cry because you can't even speak to God. It could be that maybe you've just become painfully aware of how inadequate we are in comparison with an all-powerful, all-knowing God. Maybe you've got sin weighing on your heart. Maybe we're even feeling the consequences of those wayward decisions, those sin that easily entangles us. Matthew Henry says this. He says, this mixture of sorrow and joy here is a representation of this world. Some are bathing in rivers of joy while others are drowned in floods of tears. In heaven, all are singing, but none are sighing. In hell, all are weeping and wailing, but none are rejoicing. But here on earth, we can scarcely discern the shouts of joy from the noise of the weeping. See, when we worship God, we need to worship Him with our whole being. Everything that we are. And there's emotion wrapped up in that. There's passion wrapped up in that. Look, we get tremendously emotional and passionate about a number of things in our life. We get emotional and passionate about the relationships that we have. And we're not afraid to show those emotions and those, and, and those passions. Maybe it's even hobbies that we get emotional about. Even just talking about our, 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 our favorite cars or, I mean, sports. My goodness, we get passionate and emotional about sports. But somehow, when we walk through that door, we tend to turn all that off. Because church has become something you do rather than something you are. Let me remind you, as believers, you are the church. We are the body of Christ. We are a family that are going to have tremendous uptimes and the deepest of low times. But of those times, from the highest of heights and the lowest of lows and everything in between, we recognize that we need to worship God in each and every moment. That we simply recognize who we are, we confess who he is, and we confess that we are not even close. The emotion is part of that. Passion is a part of that. We'll all react differently. And none of us, none of us, should feel the need to act in a way that is contrary to who we are. But sometimes, when you come in, I see it. I see it. Sometimes you just cannot help yourself. You're raising your hand or you're clapping your hands or you're shaking your head or you might even shout it, amen. I know it's rare in our church, but you might shout it. You might let it go. Amen. There it is. You may even be just to a point where you just you can't take it anymore. You either drop to your knees or you sit in your chair and you put your head in your hands and you shed a tear. But all those emotions, that passion, that something that comes from inside of you, from God, not something that the outside is affecting. Not because you see someone else do that. Maybe you feel like that's the way you should be. Because that turns into fake worship. And there's nothing worse than fake worship. It's hypocritical. It's damaging and it's selfish. And I'll tell you, there's there's nothing selfish about worship. Because worship is not about us. That's where we, we get it confused. I want to come to church so I can feel good about myself and I can praise God. Well, it's not really for God. It's really for me. That's not worship. See, you don't come to church for what you can get. You come to church for what you can give. For what you can give to God and praise and worship and, and, and our tithes and our offering and how we respond to the word. And what we can give to each other with support and prayer and love. And what we can give to our community. God wants us to give, not take. What he wants is our perseverance. What he wants is our passion. After all, isn't he worth being passionate for? Isn't he worth persevering for? That song that was sung so long ago and sung again today. Lord, you are good. And your mercies endures forever. So because of that, we want to persevere in all things. And when we to be passionate about our praise, it's my hope for you. Will you pray with me? Our God, we are—we want to be passionate for you, not fake passion, Lord. But sometimes worship is work; it really is. Life is hard; it's difficult, Lord. You've caused us called us to be real and genuine and authentic. We see a picture of that in this passage here. We see a picture of people persevering through all the hard times, persevering in their work and persevering in their worship and coming before you. And we see such a a diverse response to who you are, Lord, but it's all an act of worship. I pray that we can do that. I pray that we can do that in our lives every single day as we go about the work that you have for us, that important work. But then when we come to worship you on Sunday, we can push back whatever is affecting us and worship in a way that is just genuine and real, whatever that may look like. Lord, we thank you for who you are and that you are worthy to be praised. And I pray for strength for each one of us as we march through this thing called life, that you'll help us to persevere, you'll help us to be passionate in all that we do, including being passionate in our praise for you. So we want to be careful to give you all the praise and the glory and the honor in your name. Amen.